This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Snowy Owl Tea. And I am so grateful that it is because they really, truly spoil me with their scrumptious tea blends, and they always send me their latest brews. My current favorites include Second Breakfast, which is made with lemon poppy seed and toasted oats, and their newest concoction, which is called Midnight Moon, which is an Earl Grey tea blend with lavender and vanilla. Snowy Owl Teas are unique, handcrafted tea blends made with real fruit, fresh ground whole spices, full leaf teas, and blossoms. They are created with your health and comfort in mind, using 100% biodegradable tea bags, and they happen to have some of the most beautifully designed packaging I have ever seen. Best of all, Witchwave listeners get 20% off orders using code WITCH. So order some super delicious tea today from www.snowyowltea.com. This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Bone Arrow. Nestled in a dark and cozy workshop in Nottingham, England, a raven-haired witch sits at a big wooden jewelry bench made by her father, making magic in metal. Goldsmith, jeweler, conjurer of dark delights, Claire Gregory designs and makes bewitching jewelry under the name Bone Arrow. From dagger necklaces which double as athames with secret compartments for herbs, to rings stacked together to cast wearable spells, Bone Arrow offers talismanic, meaningful jewelry for witches, weirdos, and magical misfits. Visit Claire's website at bonearrow.com or peer through the misty windows of Instagram at bonearrow underscore. This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by The Moon Studio. Do you feel like you don't have enough time? Too little capacity and not enough connection? Are you over-internalized capitalism and how it shows up in your body? Are you ready to rewrite your relationship to abundance? Then Embodying Abundance, the Moon Studios' upcoming workshop series is for you. Learn and implement abundance in body, spirit, and mind in real time with a wonderful community. Enroll now at moon-studio.co and take $50 off with code WITCHWAVE. That's moon-studio.co. The world is filled with bewitching people, and you might be one too. Welcome to the podcast where art is magic, magic is real, and reality is stranger than dreams. I'm Pam Grossman, and this is The Witch Wave. Hello, and welcome to The Witch Wave. So when I was in middle school, there was this store where you could make a custom bracelet using as many silver letter charms as would fit around your wrist. And I imagine that most people would select the letters for their own name or for the name of their boyfriend or girlfriend. But I chose the letters that spelled out the word enchanted. And I wore this bracelet like a talisman for years. You've probably noticed that I use the word enchanting or enchant or some variation thereof a lot, because for me, it's always been one of those perfect words that connotes deep magic and mystery. It's one of the reasons why when I'm traveling in French or Spanish-speaking countries, my go-to phrase when meeting someone new is enchanté or encantada. 
It's a bit old-fashioned, I know, but I can't resist its charm. Cue Stevie Nicks Enchanted. And so when I heard that Catherine May's new book is entitled Enchantment, Awakening Wonder in an Anxious Age, I was primed to love it, and doubly so since I absolutely adored her prior book, Wintering, The Power of Rest and Retreat in Difficult Times. Enchantment is Catherine's exploration of the mystical experiences that are accessible to absolutely anyone, should they care, to pay enough attention and time to the world around them. And though she doesn't call herself a witch, the ways in which she engages with the natural and supernatural realms through ritual, mythopoesis, and meaning-making feels nothing short of magical. While reading Enchantment, my undergrad Anthropology of Religion classes came flooding back to me because Catherine writes about Eliade's theory of hierophany, which is a phrase that refers to something which is essentially a manifestation of the sacred. As Catherine writes... Quote, Mercia Eliada coined the term hierophany to describe the way that the divine reveals itself to us, transforming the objects through which it works. When we make a tree or a stone or a wafer of bread the subject of our worshipful attention, we transform it into a hierophany, an object of the sacred. For the believer, this means that an absolute reality has been uncovered, rather than anything fantastical being projected upon it. Hierophany is the experience of perceiving all the layers of existence, not just seeing its surface appearance. The person who believes be it an ancient animism or a complex modern religion, lives in an enhanced world, having been given a kind of supernatural key to see the wonder in the everyday. Unquote. And all of that can be very much considered both the thesis statement of Catherine's book and, for me, an encapsulation of witchcraft because for me, being a witch is not just about casting spells. It's about allowing oneself to become spellbound by the majesty and splendor of life. This also all brings to mind the Hierophant Tarot card, which is a card I confess that I often have felt some resistance to because on the surface, it is a pope, right? It's this leader of established religion or dogma or tradition. And yet, I'm reminded that the prefix hieros is Greek for sacred or holy. In ancient Greece, the Hierophant was a priest of the Eleusinian Mysteries, the sacred rites of passage where initiates would reenact the myth of Persephone's abduction to the underworld by Hades and Demeter's rescue of her, thus embodying the cycle of birth, death, and resurrection, which is, of course, a reenactment of nature's eternal shifts. The roots of the word hierophant translate to holy and to show. So a hierophant is one who reveals the sacred to others, which sits much better with me than this tarot card's more recent associations with hierarchy and organized religion. I think it's fair to say that by this older definition— Catherine May is a contemporary hierophant, because through her exquisite writing, she reveals the divinity that can be accessed anywhere and any time. I found it absolutely enchanting to be in her presence, and I think that you will too. But before we get to that, 
First, let's check and see what's come through on the witch wire. Who is it? Witches. Sam writes, Hey, I just started listening to the witch wave and I'm super into all that you guys stand for. I was hoping I could get some book recommendations for beginner witchcraft or information on different religious branches. Love the podcast. Hey, Sam. Thanks so much for the lovely words. I am so happy that you found the witch wave. And all right, I'm just going to kick things off by cheating a little bit here and telling you that this is a question that I get a lot, so much so, in fact, that I have a list of recommended books, which you can find at the FAQ tab of our website, witchwavepodcast.com. So just go there and click on FAQs and scroll down a little bit and you will find my list. However, I feel compelled to add to that list here verbally now and say that in addition to any general book about witchcraft that I've recommended, I also want to encourage you to consider looking into deepening your relationship with the elements. Yes, our good old friends, air, fire, water, and earth, and many of us witches also add spirit in various forms to that list as well when we are calling circle or engaging with spell work or ritual. Some of you know that I call the elements or the directions in a seven direction style based on how I was taught by my teacher, Robin Rose Bennett. So that's air, fire, water, earth, below, above, and the center. But there are many different ways you can do this. And quick reminder, I do have a Calling Circles PDF that you can download in the shop as well. And a Magic Circles workshop that you can download too, if that is helpful. But there are a number of books which focus on the elements. And one of the classics is Earth Power, Techniques of Natural Magic by Scott Cunningham, or the Llewellyn Elements of Witchcraft series, if you want to go into each element a bit deeper, one by one. The first book in that series is all about water magic, and it's by Prior Witchwave guest, the amazing Lilith Dorsey. But you can read the entire series or just start with whichever of the elements you feel called to. And now here is a caveat. I also feel compelled to remind you that the constructs of the four or five elements is just that, a construct. The notion of the four classical elements of fire, air, water, and earth was first put forth by the Greek philosopher Empedocles, who was born somewhere between 494 and 434 BCE, so saith Wikipedia. And interestingly, he also thought that there were two other elements, love and strife, which would interact with and influence the other four. Now, Empedocles was by all accounts quite an amazing character. He was a vegetarian who believed in reincarnation, and according to legend, he died by throwing himself into a volcano, Mount Etna to be precise. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention the song The Death of Empedocles by Momus, which is quite a banger. But bear in mind that this theory of the four elements is kind of arbitrary. Because think about it. In Chinese tradition, for example, they have an elemental structure that uses five elements, and those elements are wood, fire, earth, metal, and water. And in Vedic traditions, there are also five elements, but these are earth, water, fire, wind, and void. And getting back to the Greek system, after Empedocles, good old Aristotle went and added a fifth element, which he called ether, and some folks later call quintessence. Point being, you, my friend, are most welcome to come up with your own elemental system if you like, so don't feel as if you have to follow these witchcraft books by the letter, as I would say with any witchcraft book. So I hope that is helpful, and I thank you so much for writing, and I wish you all the best. Now, on to my guest. 
Catherine May is an internationally best-selling author and podcaster. Her most recent book, Enchantment, Awakening Wonder in an Anxious Age, became an instant New York Times and Sunday Times bestseller. Her internationally best-selling hybrid memoir, Wintering, The Power of Rest and Retreat in Difficult Times, was adapted as BBC Radio 4's Book of the Week and was shortlisted for the Porchlight and Barnes & Noble Book of the Year. The Electricity of Every Living Thing, her memoir of a midlife autism diagnosis, was adapted as an audio drama by Audible. Other titles of hers include novels such as The Whitstable High Tide Swimming Club and The Best Most Awful Job, an anthology of essays about motherhood which she edited. Her journalism and essays have appeared in a range of publications including The New York Times, The Observer, and Eon. Catherine's podcast, How We Live Now, ranks in the top 1% worldwide, and she has been a guest presenter for On Being's The Future of Hope series. Catherine joined me from her home in Whitstable, England, via Zoom. Catherine May, welcome to The Witch Wave. Thank you so much for having me. I am so delighted to have you, Catherine. I am such a fan of you and your work. This is truly a thrill. Oh, well, bless you. Thank you. Oh, of course, of course. So I was walking to the studio today, and it's springtime here in the Northern Hemisphere and in Brooklyn. The trees are showing off. There's like an explosion of cherry blossoms, and it really, really took my breath away. And I thought a good place to start with you is to ask you if you have seen anything enchanting or beautiful today or recently that sticks with you. Oh, yeah. Well, I take a little daily walk down to the sea, which is about five minutes from my front door. And I try and see it every day because actually there's always something enchanting there. And today there was just the most beautiful blue sky above the water. It was cloudless and uniform and just absolutely perfect. It was thrilling. It's heartlifting when that blue sky finally arrives after all the grey. Ah. Absolutely. And I love that <laughs> phrase, heart lifting. I felt my heart lift a little bit as you said it. Ah, uh, yeah, it's a good word. Yeah. So we're here under the guise of talking about your new book, Enchantment, Awakening Wonder in an Anxious Age. But I want to actually circle back a little bit to your prior book, Wintering, The Power of Rest and Retreat in Difficult Times, because certainly these books feel like companions to one another. And when Wintering came out, this happened during the pandemic, and it felt almost like you were psychic. It was the book we all <laughs> needed to read. I was wondering if you could root this conversation a little bit in, just broadly speaking, where you were at in your own life that made you want to write about this concept of wintering, mm. and then where that left you after this long three-year, we'll call it an emotional or psychological winter that we've all been living through and emerging in into enchantment. Yeah, well, it was interesting because when I decided to write Wintering and began to pitch it around, it was actually before all the events in the book happened. So I'd planned to write this wise, distant book about the kind of emotional downturns in life from a nice, safe distance, having <laughs> wintered in the past, but definitely not wintering in that moment. And in the time between the book getting commissioned and me actually finding the time to write it, so much went on. First of all, my husband got really sick and then I got sick. And in the meantime, I'd already decided to leave my job. But I then had to contend with this really difficult of working out my notice while I was ill and at home and the real guilt and isolation that came with that. And then just as things were beginning to sort themselves out a little, we realised that my son could no longer handle being at school. And so there were these wave of 
not catastrophes, nothing particularly rare or unusual, I don't think. You know, like we often think about memoir as stuff that's written about exceptional events in life and exceptional suffering. Mm. And wintering isn't about that at all. It's about the kind of quite ordinary things that happen to so many of us. And it let me actually write about the psychological minutiae of living through that rather than that very distance perspective that I was hoping to take, which I don't think would have captured quite so much. Yes, 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 yes. And for people who haven't read Wintering, I like to describe it as you really talking about and engaging with both metaphorical winters and literal winters. These times when life seems to go fallow, these times of pause. And the book really addresses the challenges of winter, but also the beauty of winter. And the way you write is very lyrical. It's like a tapestry in which you're weaving together all of these different elements, both your life experiences, but also inspiration from other writers, your day-to-day life, but also some travels that you go on. It's really exquisitely done. And I suppose I'm curious with wintering if that transformed your relationship to the season itself, the literal winter. Well, definitely. But also I went in wanting to express how much I loved winter and kind of wanting to convert people to this really maligned season, which I think it's so tragic the way that we just assume that winter is this kind of point in the calendar year that we put our heads down and try and ignore and hope it will disappear as quickly as possible. And that seems to me to be a big waste of our lives because we're passing out a quarter of the year every single year and we can't afford to do that. Mm. But also, I think we're missing a lot when we don't engage with the beauty that winter is offering us because it really, really is offering so many moments of grace and deep immersion. The fact that it's cold is part of its appeal because it sort of forces us into really living through it rather than being able to breeze past it. So I did go in with a bit of a mission about that. But writing the book let me learn much more about this season that I was already pretty fond of. And that in turn has kind of deepened my experience and love for it. But of course, now I spend a lot of time trying to convince other people. So I've become the winter poster girl. So whenever I grumble that I'm feeling cold, you know, everyone's like, oh, wow. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. I confess, I don't love winter. I hate to be cold. And your book really helped transform my relationship to winter. And certainly, of course, when you're talking about metaphorical winters, about these times in our life whether that's times of grief, times of depression, but also times of just slowness, of things maybe not happening as quickly as we might like. Your book is a book I've turned back to, both literally the pages of, but also just in my mind, to help me remember every season has a purpose. And our emotional seasons of pause, of retreat, of sanctuary, of turning inward are so necessary for us to then do all the blossoming and the more vital external work that we need to do. Oh, absolutely. I mean, winter, metaphorical and literal, is really necessary as part of our lived experience. And it's this time when we get to process, to reflect, to integrate. And all of those things can only happen if we retreat just a little. And if we sort of step back from the very, very aggressively busy social life that lots of us are engaged in all the time now. In the Celtic tradition, it's often called gestational winter. Yes. This idea that the year is pregnant with the next generation of ideas. And I think that's such a beautiful way to think about it. Winter is about developing potential. And then we go out in the warmer months, again, metaphorical and literal. Yes. And enact that potential. But there comes a point when we're going out and out and out and doing and doing and doing. We get exhausted and we get depleted and we need to withdraw again and to start to think about what went right, what went wrong, what to do next. And that's when winter comes back and and welcomes us into its lovely, cozy embrace. Mm. 
Catherine, I'm so happy you brought up Celtic traditions because as someone who identifies as a witch myself and who's a practicing Mm. witch, of course, I was deeply attracted to all of the (laughs) different rituals and holidays and goddesses that you wrote about during the book Wintering and which Mm. come up a bit in your new book as well. And so there's a section in Wintering that really makes me giggle. And you're essentially talking about going to, I believe it was a winter solstice ritual at Stonehenge. And you're kind of grappling with your longing for being part of this ritual, but also kind of your English squirminess. I'm paraphrasing (laughs) here. Yes, yes. I'll actually read a phrase from that book. You write, More and more, I find that I'm drawn to moments like this, an uplift in the monotonous progress of the year and a way to mark the movement to the next phase. But that desire also makes me squirm, as though it's some kind of perversion that I'm shy to admit in public. (laughs) Rituals have always seemed a tiny bit daft to me. To need this one, to want it, sits uneasily. Mm. And you also refer to yourself in wintering as kind of an interloper. And so you've gone from this squirminess in wintering, this maybe feeling like an interloper in this world of magic, enchantment, ritual. And then you go on to write an entire book about (laughs) enchantment. So I would love to hear you sort of expand on when you finished wintering and it was out in the world, what led you then to want to more publicly deepen your relationship with enchantment? I think I let the stopper out of the bottle, really, didn't I? You know, once I'd, <laughs> once I'd got over my self-consciousness of, of doing that. And in fact, actually, there is a very direct link. I mean, not only the things I talked about in that chapter, but also the conversations I ended up having in the wake of the book coming out. And the interesting observation that I've made so many times now, and forgive me if you've heard it before, but when I have conversations with American interviewers, they cut straight to those bits about both my books, like the spiritual parts, the congregational ideas, the idea of there being something bigger than just the individual. And UK interviewers do not even mention those bits because they remain so (laughs) embarrassed by them. As an embarrassed British person, it was great to have those conversations that come so directly and so fluidly in American culture. It just made me want to explore it more. It made me want to make much... Oh, sorry, that was someone at my door. I hope you didn't hear that. Oh, I love the texture of the bell. It felt very magical. Keep going. (laughs) Drives me crazy. It made me want to dig much deeper into exactly what I thought about those things because it still felt very muddy to me and very unclear. That's when I always start writing a book, I guess, is when I'm looking to understand something better. It's the only way I know to really unpick my thoughts in that level of detail. And so, yeah, I think that's exactly how wintering sort of segued into enchantment. It's very interesting to hear you talk about the English reaction to your writing versus the American reaction. Because as an American witch, I think I fantasize and the idea of the English magic (laughs) and the fantasy novels that have come out of your part of the world. Certainly the Wicca movement of the 1950s and 60s. You know, this is Gerald Gardner, a British person and all of his cohort. So I think of England as this like deeply enchanted place. And sometimes I think about America where certainly we have our own history that's very complicated, Mm -hmm. of course. But so many of our buildings are very young and so much of our history is very young. And certainly I'm talking about post-colonial history. Of course, indigenous people have been here a very long time and there's a whole history of enchantment there. But I really hold British people up sometimes as being more connected to enchantment. But it sounds like that's not your experience. Okay, so, I mean, there's everything here in the same way that there's everything in America. And I shouldn't over-stigmatize us on that front. But there is that kind of cultural embarrassment about talking about the spiritual in particular. And in some ways, I'm really grateful for that, because even though we have an established church, it's 
mostly pretty humble about what it expects of other people in terms of belief. And we don't get those big battles where religion meets politics in quite the same way that you guys are living through. Oh, you're lucky, my friend. <laughs> yeah, I, honestly, I feel genuine gratitude about that. I mean, it's there, but it really isn't so dominant and so aggressive. On the whole, our church tends to be pretty liberal, actually. However, there is this sense that maybe derives from that, that we don't talk about this that it's embarrassing, that it's awkward. And I do increasingly feel frustrated by that. And that means that quite often, although we do have this like beautiful, rich cultural history that goes back millennia, and we have this extraordinary like standing stones and ancient buildings and landscapes, we often don't notice them at all. Mm. And there's a little bit at the beginning of Enchantment where I visit a very ancient healing well, which is near me in Canterbury. And it's completely hidden. Nobody knows it's there. Mm. It's hidden behind a bush. It's unsignposted. You know? Yeah, yeah. And in other countries, there would be a trail of people going there to tend it and to worship there and to bring meaning to it. And I think in a way we have an embarrassment of riches in Britain, so much so that only a few people are stopping to notice. Maybe there's some opportunities there for us to step back into that space that so many of us are longing for, but we don't know what to do in that space. Mm. On that note, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Black Phoenix Alchemy Lab is a specialty fragrance house currently celebrating its 20th year, now based in Philadelphia. Black Phoenix Alchemy Lab specializes in formulating body and household blends with a dark, romantic, gothic tone. And over the years, they've collaborated with so many of my heroes, including Neil Gaiman, Guillermo del Toro, and the Jim Henson Company. They continually return to inspirations drawn from history, mythology, literature, pop culture, and fine art, and they have a sister store called Twilight Alchemy Lab that creates oils blended and consecrated specifically for use in witchcraft and ritual magic. Keep up with their latest seasonal perfume releases by looking them up on social media. And Black Phoenix Alchemy Lab also now has a YouTube channel where they share scent reviews, announcements, and original video art. Perfume archives and customer reviews going back many years can be found at the fanrun bpal.org web forum. And of course, you can order all of Black Phoenix Alchemy Lab's decadent perfumes, oils, and more at blackphoenixalchemylab.com. The Witch Wave is sponsored by BetterHelp. Look, I know that self-care has become such a trendy phrase, but it's really just about how much time you spend on yourself in a given week versus how much time you spend on other people. It's a challenge for a lot of us, I would even say for most of us, to balance this. It certainly is for me at times. It is so easy to get caught up in what everybody else needs from you, whether it's your family, your job, your community, your cats, and never take a moment to think about what you need from yourself. But when we make sure to also spend time on self-care, whether that's through rest or ritual or introspection or what have you, it can help us refill our well and bring us more well-being. Because when we spend all of our time giving, it can leave us feeling stretched thin and burnt out, and I know you know what I'm talking about. But self-care is replenishing, and therapy is self-care. It can give you the tools you need to find more balance in your life so you can keep supporting others without leaving yourself behind. For me, along with witchcraft, therapy has been a huge aspect of my self-care. I have been in therapy for decades, and I truly believe that it's something every human being can benefit from. 
Therapy has helped me feel less overwhelmed and more in tune with who I am and what I need so that I can then be a more present, generative, and generous person for the people in my life that I care about, which includes my listeners like you. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you have to do to get started is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge to make sure that you find somebody who's the right match for you and your self-care. Find more balance with better help. Visit betterhelp.com slash witchwave today to get 10% off your first month. That's better H-E-L-P dot com slash witchwave. Would you like even more witchwave? Do you wish you could hear from me and my other bewitching guests on a weekly basis? Then come join us on Patreon, where you'll get bi-weekly bonus Witchwave Plus episodes, ad-free Witchwave episodes, and detailed show notes for all. Rewards for some tiers also include magical merch and contests where you can win witchly prizes each month, as well as early heads up about my workshops before they sell out. And all backers get access to our exclusive digital coven, where I lead monthly online rituals and where you can connect to a community of other wonderful witch wave witches around the world. So head on over to patreon.com slash witchwave and sign up. It's a fabulous way to get more magic in your life and to support the show. Thank you so much. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today I'm speaking with Catherine May. So Catherine, we've been sort of circling around your new book, Enchantment, Awakening Wonder in an Anxious Age. And I wanted to ask you, how the pandemic may or may not have informed your writing of this book or your longing to write this book? Oh, it made it almost impossible, frankly. Mm. I really found the sort of successive lockdowns that we had robbed me of all the circumstances under which I'd normally write. So anything from the fact that, you know, I had my husband and son at home making a noise and invading all my quiet spaces that I was used to them being mine during the daytime and mine alone. That was quite a nasty shock. Mm. But also the level of worry that we were all living with, you know, concern about family members, personal concerns, like made it very hard to concentrate. I suppose the biggest one for me in lots of ways was I approach writing by doing. So quite often I will have an idea and I'll visit a place or I'll do a thing or I'll have a conversation with someone that will then spur me into my writing. And I felt like there was a whole stage that I couldn't enact. And I felt really stuck. And I also worried a lot about what world this book would land in because everything was thrown up in the air. I knew that it would be coming out, you know, at least two years after I began to write, maybe even longer. Mm-hmm. And there was just no sense in which I had any idea of what that world was going to look like at that point. You know, were we still going to be locked down? Were we still going to be fearing this constant threat? Or were we all going to be vaccinated and absolutely fine? I did wonder if we would have forgotten about it by then. Mm. I mean, as it happens, that unfortunately has not come true. And in fact, the kind of conflicts that I talk about in the book have been heightened by the pandemic rather than settled by it. And I think maybe lots of us wouldn't have expected that. Mm. Although, you know, if we'd have stopped to think about the way these things go, I guess we might have done. But yeah, so it made it very, very hard to think about what to say and what would be useful or helpful or interesting for anyone at this kind of unspecified date in the future. So I found it incredibly hard to get started. Oh, my goodness. Well, I have to say it feels like another example, though, of you being a little bit psychic, just in terms of (laughs) I know a lot of my friends, whether they consider themselves witches or not, have been talking about this feeling of emerging from the pandemic. And let's be clear, COVID is still around. The pandemic is still happening, but it does feel like things have opened up quite a bit. And this feeling of a dullness of the senses, of 
brain fog, of not feeling as excited or as plugged in to the current of the natural or the supernatural or both, as the case may be. And this book is all about helping us to reawaken to that side of ourselves, which is more in tune I mean, I would call it the magical. I don't know if you have a specific word that you go to. Mm-hmm. One of the words I love that you talk about in the book is this word hierophany from Eliada. Yeah, beautiful word. Yeah. I love using the word magical, actually. I have to say, like, I think magic captures so much of what I'm trying to say, and not least we have warped the word magic into something that it, it never was in the first place. I feel like I'm talking about an older understanding of the word magic, which is this fascination, which is another word that derives from our understanding of magic and this sense of fluidity and this sense of mystery and the unknown, but also this sense of practice and the fact that we work with magic rather than watch it you know, watch a man like get a rabbit out of a hat on a stage, which is the (laughs) least interesting version of magic that I can think of. I love thinking about the word magic for that. And I love the way that it makes a lot of people really uncomfortable because it takes us straight into territory that we consider to be irrational, but which I think is incredibly practical, in fact. Yes, 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 Catherine. I'm going to (laughs) like levitate off my chair. I'm so, so happy to hear you say that because it's a word I've been using a lot more often myself. And it's a word I've had to push through my own self-consciousness around this feeling of like, well, I'm a serious person and I have critical thinking skills and all of that stuff. And yet I think it's such an important word. And I love how you talk about practice, that our relationship with magic is an active one. It's not passive, right? We have to co-create with it or have some kind of communication or connection with it and work with it. Yeah, absolutely. And that work, I mean, one of the things that I think blocks us from this deep engagement with the world around us is the idea that that work somehow has to be handed to us by an outside authority. So we're used to religion giving us and defining the rituals that we need to make and actually like predetermining the meaning of them as well. And we're weary with that. And so we're throwing the whole thing out. Um, Whereas actually for me, this kind of practicality and this practice that is linked to the idea of magic is inviting us to personally participate in making those meanings and developing them and inventing our, our own rituals and adapting them to suit us in the moment. And I find that really exciting, but I think there are a lot of people who need a strong invitation to do that and to not feel silly or self-conscious or like it's not real if they do it themselves and so that's kind of what I hope enchantment does is is just say to people that you don't have to follow anyone that you don't want to follow you are allowed to do this for yourself but to do it you have to commit to it and you have to show it faith and you have to practice you have to return to it you have to evaluate you have to go back in again and not just walk away shrugging your shoulders and saying you know you can't or it's not for you Absolutely. And people are longing for this. I'm sure you've seen a lot of the statistics that I've seen around less people than ever are calling themselves religious, but more people than ever are calling themselves spiritual. And I wonder if you think religion is still relevant. Did you grow up with religion yourself? No, not at all. My family was, which was unusual at the time, maybe sort of directly atheist rather than just not practicing. Mm. But I did go to church primary schools, which are really common in the UK. I know not so common where you are. Yeah. And so I spent a lot of time in churches and I also went to like brownies and guides. And then when I went to university, I sang in the chapel choir three times a week. So I've probably spent more time in church than most Christians, realistically. pretty familiar with how it all goes. And actually, for me, I never connected with the liturgical elements of Christianity, but I did love the rhythm that it gave to my weeks. I loved that time in chapel when nothing else was happening. You know, we were all there with this common focus and in this beautiful and peaceful setting. So yes, in lots of ways, I did have something to carry forward with me from 
established religion in a way that maybe isn't obvious and, and maybe I've only realised quite late in life but I learned a lot from it even if I rejected the exact tenets behind it. Yeah, it kind of to some degree mirrors my experience. So as I said, you know, I'm a practicing witch. I was also raised mm. Jewish. Okay. And we were what's called reform Jewish, which is kind of culturally Jewish, though I did have a bat mitzvah, but we didn't keep kosher. You know, we sometimes right. went yeah. to temple like yeah. it was very flexible. And yet a lot about that I sort of rebelled against as a young person. And then I found witchcraft because it seemed to give me more of a pathway into mystery and into the feminine in my case and into magic. But then as I got older, I've been looping back around and I'm like, wait a second, there's all of this mystery and feminine magic and folk magic in my traditions, too. I just wasn't taught that version of it. And it makes me think about the difference between like mysticism and religion as well. Does the word mysticism have resonance for you? Yeah, I quite often get called a mystic, which I find really confusing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love that. Yeah, I've been quite resistant to it and I'm getting a bit more relaxed with it because I think at its base, the idea of mysticism is about the idea of direct contact with the sacred or the divine or maybe not the sacred or divine, but actually something more intangible than that, but something that feels bigger and more meaningful and deeper and, and more profound than the everyday life that we're used to. And I've got quite interested in the history of mysticism and what it's meant and how feminine mysticism is as a practice. It seems to me that it's a place where women have taken their spiritual power that they were otherwise denied and have often suffered for it. Yes. As you know, is so often the case. But I do wonder if that isn't a way forward for so many of us is to think about that sense of direct contact, direct revelation, as some religions would call it, and like dancing with that intangibility of how the divine feels rather than reading about the divine from a a second or third hand source, which feels to me very unsatisfying. Mm, So beautifully said, Catherine. So the way that you organize the book is by essentially having these four parts which map to the four elements. Mm. And of course, that delighted the witchy person in me <laughs> because I wrote it for you. I hope you realize that. <laughs> I feel it. I feel it. It really thrilled me to see you. And I'm certainly not trying to put any language or identity on you. But I consider it quite witchy to kind of organize your own enchantment around these elements. And when I was taught to cast a magic circle, I was taught to call it in this order. And I was taught in the seven direction style by my teacher, Robin Rose Bennett. So we start with air, then fire, water, earth, below, above, and the center. But of course, that's arbitrary. You can call the directions any which way. It really is about essentially enchanting your space and forming sacred space. And your book goes in a different order. And I would love to hear about why you started with Earth. In the first place, that was the order that the ancient Greeks saw the elements as occurring in. It worked from the ground up. And so I, in some ways, I, I simply followed that. But at the same time, it was also about my needs, in fact, that I needed to start with grounding. Yes. Physically, metaphorically, you know, every which way. And actually then the elements kind of pointed me in a direction because as I worked my way upwards, it seemed to me that you work your way towards freedom. You know, the air is this dispersal and this sense of letting go and allowing the random to take hold and allowing things to float away, you know, not holding on to things so tightly. And I then love this idea of this fifth element that some people use and not others, which is this ether And the heavens are made of it. It's this divine material that is mysterious in and of itself and is not knowable in the same way that the earthly elements are. So, yeah, I followed that order, but it was only in the later stages of the book that I realized that that was the organizing principle. In fact, as I was writing it, I hadn't thought about the elements at all. And it was only during like the second or third edit that I realized that they were all there. You know, Mm -hmm. they were all there in order, Mm. but I absolutely hadn't intended it. It's just one of the many examples of my books being cleverer than I am. I think they sort of, (laughs) (laughs) they reveal things to me that I don't know. (laughs) Oh, oh, I just adore that. 
On that note, we're going to take another quick break and we'll be right back. If you've been listening to The Witch Wave for a while, you know by now that I am absolutely infatuated with Mithras Candle. Mithras Candle was one of my very first sponsors when the show launched over five years ago, and they are still one of my very favorite sponsors because their candles are so gorgeous, so magical, and so thoughtfully made. These pure beeswax lights are inspired by the modern science of photobiology, along with ancient pagan practices and cosmic mysteries. Mithras candles are handmade by my mythic and scientific pals in Philadelphia, and they come in traditional golden yellow and sensual black hues with unique colors and collaborations popping up seasonally. You will be absolutely obsessed, too, once you experience the beautiful Byzantine hand-dripped style of a Mithras candle and their honeyed floral aroma. Mm, mm. Go to MithrasCandle.com to pick up the perfect candle for your most magical moments or to simply infuse the mundane with something sacred. Witchwave listeners get 18% off their first order by using offer code WITCH at checkout. That's offer code WITCH at M as in magic, I-T-H-R-A-S, candle.com. Hi, Witch Wavers. I have exciting news. At long last, we have some new Witch Wave merch available for you now through TeePublic. We decided to go with TeePublic for our new Witch Wave merch because it is a print-on-demand site, which means you can get different variations of the Witch Wave logo printed on t-shirts, mugs, totes, stickers, magnets, notebooks, oh my gods, the sky's the limit. And the shirts come in different styles and fabrics and colors and are available in sizes small through 5XL, so you can order whatever you'll feel you're most magical in. So head on over to witchwavepodcast.com slash shop. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today I'm speaking with Catherine May. So Catherine, we were talking about the structure of your book around the four elements, and then, spoiler alert, you sneak in a fifth one at the end. But I wanted to go a little bit deeper into some of these elements. You start with earth, and then you go to water. And it seems to me that water is an element that has very personal resonance for you because you are a swimmer and you became, during wintering, I believe, a cold water swimmer. Yeah, that's right. And I understand you've had a lot of ups and downs with your relationship to water because of some physicality mm-hmm. that you have in your ears. I don't know if that is still mm-hmm. something that you're you're grappling with. Yeah. So I'd love to invite you to just talk about what is your relationship to water today? Let's start there. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, I'm always intensely drawn towards water always have been like right from being a tiny child like I was that kid who had to be grabbed to stop running into ponds and and the sea whenever we were anywhere outside the house yes my way to soothe myself has always been to get into a bath and to soak for a while in hot water like if I'm feeling all out of sorts that's definitely the thing I do you know and I sometimes have a bath in the middle of the day just to settle myself again and it's the best way I know to self-soothe My relationship with water is intense and it's very needy almost of all of those elements that I could have definitely written a whole book about water and probably could have written five books about water because I go to it over and over again. The chronic condition I have, which is Meniere's disease, is actually caused probably, it's very poorly researched, by an excess of water in the inner ear. Mm. And it leaves me quite often like very dizzy, Mm. feeling very sick it causes like quite a lot of pain in my back muscles because my body thinks it's falling so it braces Mm. and so that I get these hideous muscle spasms and it also means that my hearing is affected. I inherited this from my dad. I love to bring this up to him because it's good to blame your parents for something. Always, always. (laughs) (laughs) We do get to have some very good conversations about exactly what it feels like but after I had COVID for the first time the Meniere's disease got a lot worse. 
I think, you know, COVID seems to cause these kind of waves of inflammation mm. and Meniere's is really reactive to inflammation. I found that actually for the first time in my life, the idea of getting into water and swimming felt horrible, felt really unsettling because actually I didn't need to be any more unstable than I already was. Like the idea of floating was just a, yet another challenge to my poor brain. It already thought it was upside down all the time. Sure, sure. That came at a time when also all the public swimming pools were closed and we'd been banned for the longest time from swimming in the sea. And there was this uncertainty about what we were actually even allowed to do and whether we should obey those rules or rebel against them. That felt a lot like grief to me to at that particular point in history of all times to be denied the thing that I have always relied on to soothe myself and lately to gather with other like-minded people to to be soothed together. Mm. We sometimes have to adapt to circumstances that we'd never have chosen and have to find new ways to take care of ourselves during those hardest times and that came up for me such a lot when I was writing in Chum. Absolutely. Have you been able to swim more recently or is that still something that you're taking a break from? It's settling down. I am swimming more often. I still haven't got back into my pre-pandemic habits. And that's partly because now this new thing has begun in the coast around me, which is that our water board has begun to release sewage into our water quite regularly. No! It's horrific. Ugh. And we can track it. They they advertise when they've done it, which is, I guess, helpful. But of course, that's disrupted with our swimming as well. And it feels like this hideous kind of masculine owning of our beautiful coastline, our beautiful world spaces, taking over and just being so destructive and so domineering. And I'm so angry about it. Yes. But that has definitely got in the way of my swimming now again. So I'm finding new ways to do it. And actually, I think as a response to that, a local outdoor pool has now started opening all through the winter. So I'm beginning to go there. I will have to put up with the chlorine, but at least it's outdoors. But yeah, we never quite get to choose exactly what we want to do, I don't think. Absolutely. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. And oh, don't uh, get me stuck. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll move on. We'll move on quickly. But just to say in your book, certainly swimming is a big element of the water section, but you also talk about visiting these magical wells, which you mentioned already. And you talk about drinking from natural water. And I suppose you have some kind of contraption or filter that allows you to do this. I was like, I need to know what that is, Catherine, because what a beautiful sort of sacrament or I'm thinking of all these different religious words, baptism, whatever we want to call it. But to be able to intake water just from land that's around us, it it seems like such a foreign concept to me because I just assume everything's polluted now, which is so depressing. So what is this magical contraption of which you write? (laughs) (laughs) I have a Grail cup, which is G-R-A-Y-L. It's an American company, actually. You have to have to ship them over in the UK and they should totally sponsor me because I tell everyone about them. And what a great name. I mean, I come know, on. Who can resist really, that? It integrates so beautifully with the whole story. But it's this really lovely, tiny device that is the size of a cup. You put your water in and you push a filter through it and it removes everything right down to viruses. And you can only use fresh water in it. You can't use salt water. But any river, you can just dip your cup in and drink and it makes the water safe. And I just absolutely love that. I mean, it's wonderful as a walker because when I go on long walks now, as long as there's a river near me, I don't have to carry water. I can just have a drink and I know it's going to be clean. It has become a ritual for me, like to drink the place that I'm visiting. I love that. I'm all about immersing in the landscape and becoming part of it and it becoming part of me rather than just passing through it. And I think drinking it is definitely a lovely way to practice that. Oh, how exquisite. I love that. And (laughs) this episode of The Witch Way brought to you by Grail Cup, I suppose. Let's all get (laughs) one. it will be once you let them know. (laughs) How fabulous. Well, listen, I truly, in in another lifetime or a parallel lifetime, we would be talking about every element together. Maybe we'll do that another time down the road because I love the ways in which you wrote about (laughs) fire and air and so on as well. But something that struck me when I was finishing your new book and then I revisited wintering, you 
ended wintering, again, spoiler alert, by talking about your voice and how after your pregnancy with your son, and perhaps during, forgive me, my memory's a little squishy, but it seemed like your voice was lost or you were having trouble speaking, you were having trouble singing. And then at the end, you are able to get your voice back and you're able to speak in this way that is more freeing. You're able to sing again. And then I was looking up the etymology of the word enchantment because enchant is one of my (laughs) favorite words too. And I knew it was about magic and spells, but I didn't realize. And of course, the word chant (laughs) has the word singing as its root. There's this connection to song. And so it seemed to me like this book is like a song for you, this beautiful extension of all of the magical work that you've been doing for yourself through your writing and also through your own engagement with magic and with the world. Does singing still feel like a practice for you that is important? Is it something that you're engaging in with regularity? Yes, singing is really important to me. I come from a family that sings a lot. I've always sung. And after I went through that, my voice just abandoned me and worked with a singing teacher it really changed the way I use my voice for good. And I feel quite often now that when I speak, I'm singing much more than I'm speaking. Like there's much, there's a gentleness that's emerged for me that, that wasn't there before. I no longer feel like I'm being forceful with my voice. I feel like using my voice is a much more restful thing. You know, wintering ends on a note of song. One of the things that I've been thinking about with my friends recently, we go and celebrate the solstices on the beach. And we keep saying every time we go there, we forget in between. But we keep saying we need to find a song for this moment because we're all singers. And I think maybe that takes us full circle in our conversation in a way, because we don't have those established practices that will give us a song now. There's this need and this desire to find the song that matches the moment. That's an interesting project to undertake for those of us that love song because it's a way of worshipping. It's a way of raising your voice. It's a way of feeling your way into the moment and creating emotion. And it's a way that we can repeat the same practice over and over again and share it and pass it on. I'm kind of busy looking for new songs right now. Um, But my son and I have a song now that we learned a couple of years ago, which is a Middle English song called Summer Is A Coming In, which we sing about this time every year as it comes up to May Day. We've learned the very complex Anglo-Saxon language between us and sing it in a round. You know, these rituals that we can create are interdependent with our history and there's so much we can draw on. But yeah, I'm always looking for the right song for the right moment. Oh, how beautiful. Well, your book, Enchantment, is the right song for this moment. I'm so grateful that you wrote it. I'm so grateful for all of your work. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. I just know that listeners are going to want to connect more, certainly with your books, but I know you have many other offerings that you create in the world. So in our last moments together, how can people connect with you? How can people learn more from you, hear more from you, read more from you? Oh, yeah, I'm always busy. I have a podcast, which is called How We Live Now, available on all good platforms. And you can also find me with my newsletter, which I think is one of the best places to connect with me. I'm katherinemay.substack.com. And I have an Instagram too, forward slash May with an underscore at the end, but you should be able to find me. I'm definitely findable. Fabulous. And am I correct that you sometimes teach at retreats or lead retreats as well? I do. Yeah, I run my own retreats. I have a couple coming up in May and June this year. It's very sporadic because life is busy. Yes. But yeah, I do. I love, love, love to gather people together and, and get them into a room and, uh, and spend some time together. So whenever I can get away with it, I do that. How fabulous. Well, Catherine, our time together has been absolutely enchanted. I hope our paths cross again. Thank you so much, Catherine. Thank you so much. It's been so great to talk to you. And I'm sure we will meet again. That's it for the show. Thank you again to Catherine May for sharing her enchanting wisdom with me. Do you have questions, feedback, need some witchly advice, or just want to share something magical that happened to you recently? Drop us an email at witchwavepodcast at gmail.com. 
We'd love to hear from you, and you just might make it on The Witch Wire. The Witch Wave is a phantasmophile production written and produced by me, Pam Grossman. This episode was recorded and edited by Josh Wilcox and myself. Our theme music is the song Hand and Eye by Lycanthia. Our new Witchwave logo was designed by Thunderwing. Special thanks go to Matt Freeman, Lara Antal, and Cece Pascal. You can check out information about this and other episodes on our website and now buy Witchwave merch at witchwavepodcast.com. Please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and give us lots and lots of sparkly stars. It really, truly makes a difference and helps other people find the show. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WitchwavePod, and you can check out my witch emoji for iPhone by going to witchemoji.com or downloading it in the App Store. Please consider ordering my book, Witchcraft, and or picking up my book, Waking the Witch, which are both available everywhere now. And if you want more Witch Wave or you would just like to support the show, please join us over on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash witchwave. Thank you so much for listening. Witches are the future. I'll catch you next time on The Witch Wave.